Hello, welcome back. Hopefully you're in the right place. This is MLEX's weekly podcast covering the top regulatory stories from around the world. I'm James Paniki. It's great to be with you. Now, we have two separate but equally intriguing yarns for your consideration today. In just a few minutes' time, we'll tell you why, if you're an antitrust lawyer in South Korea, you shouldn't hydrate before going to a hearing of the Korean Fair Trade Commission. That's right, with the chance that key hearings will drag on until midnight with not even a moment to spare, there's little time for bathroom breaks. It sounds trivial, but the KFTC's insistence on one-day hearings is leading to some disquiet among local companies. And our correspondent in Seoul will be joining us to chat about the state of play there. But first up, the latest developments in M&A rules in the UK, which are raising some concern. Deals involving foreign investors will be facing tough new standards based around national security priorities. London isn't alone in beefing up its foreign investment regime over such concerns, and we've seen plenty of other jurisdictions around the world do the same. But the push appears to be at odds with the Brexit backdrop against which this is all unfolding. The UK is very keen to encourage foreign investors to part with their cash. So how to manage this balance? Simon Zakaria is a senior MLEX correspondent based in London, and he's been digging around to make sense of this regulatory uptick, and he joins us now. Okay, uh, Simon, walk us through this uh, one step at a time. What has happened here? Hello, James. Um, Well, uh, last week, the UK government put before UK lawmakers its uh, National Security and Investment Bill. And this is basically a fundamental reform of the state's powers to screen deal-making by foreign companies or investors to protect uh, national security. This obviously has big implications at a critical time for the UK because uh, it's about to complete its uh, Brexit from the EU. Obviously, we've got the uh, transition period that's ending at the end of the year. And all the guaranteed economic benefit and trade flow that comes with that membership So politically, it's an important time, but it's also caused a big stir because while everyone knew the bill was coming, the final draft text went much further than the original proposal as set out in 2018. So that's caused big waves too. Mm. Just explain to us what has caused the concern. Why now? What has sparked this? I think the the best way to look at this is first to look at the current regime um, and how the National Security and Investment Bill would differ from that. So if you think about now, currently national security is one of three public interest grounds under which the UK can intervene in deals such as mergers and takeovers, Uh, the other two being concerns over media ownership and national financial stability. But it can only jump in based on very strict criteria. So firstly, the regime only covers acquisitions and shareholding purchases. And there are also very uh, clear financial thresholds for the deals to meet to allow screening of them by the government. So, for example, if the target of the deal has annual sales of around $100 million, that is uh, a kind of a a standard benchmark. But under the new bill, the government would take total control of the regime. So there would be no involvement at all for the UK competition regulator. And there are also other big differences too. So the screening would, uh, would include intellectual property deals and asset purchases as well. So those could be, for example... Uh, land or property acquisitions. Secondly, there would also be no minimum target sales or market share thresholds generally applied to the deals. 
So that's kind of a catch-all uh, mechanism. So if we look at it in, in totality, it's a much wider regime. It would catch many more deals and therefore it would have a greater impact. It's quite interesting because if you look at the, the actual figures, the differences are stark. So the government is now saying that the new regime would see up to 1,800 notifications made a year, uh, with about 80 a year going forward to a detailed review. And if you compare that to now, if you look at the totality of the last 20 years or so under the current regime, there have been only 12 security reviews carried out in total. Now, you just mentioned that the Competition and Markets Authority, or CMA, has been sidelined in this process, which is, I suppose, understandable. But who will now be assessing whether or not a deal involving a foreign acquisition or or foreign merger or foreign capital, who is going to be assessing whether or not that deal is anti-competitive or might have uh, some kind of an implication for a given market in the UK if the CMA has indeed been sidelined? Well, uh, as I said, if there are competition uh, implications, then the government would take control of that. And then if there are questions about that, it would refer that to the regulator. But in terms of the part of the formalised process of looking at the deals, reviewing them, and then sending them on to the government, that system has totally changed. So in a sense, the the CMA is, is very much on the sidelines. It's not really at the forefront of these reviews. Okay, so why does this matter for companies and investors? What are the implications for those players? Well, there are big implications for the uh, companies' investors because it means uh, a big change to their their legal and commercial strategy. So under the new system, as proposed by the government through the bill, there would be a complete change in the way deals are notified. So under the current system, notification of deals like mergers and takeovers, etc., is voluntary. And then the government would step in on occasions if it had concerns. But in the under the bill, there would be a hybrid model. So there would be, under the proposals as they stand now, 17 industrial sectors with perceived sensitive assets. So we've got the usual traditional ones like defence and energy, etc. But there's also new technologies like robotics and uh, space technology. So these kind of deals under those sectors would have to be notified in advance to a new security unit in the government and be approved before they can be completed. So in effect, it's a mandatory regime. Even for other sectors, which would still be under the voluntary notification regime, the government would also have a call-in power to screen those transactions even many years later. So that is a huge change to the way things are currently done. And there are also, for companies and uh, individuals, uh, big uh, repercussions if they don't comply. So uh, companies could be fined or executives jailed if they don't comply with these new rules. And of course, the the final result from the intervention from the state has big consequences for these uh, deal-making partners because deals can be blocked, they can be unwound or be made to change in some dramatic way. So there are big implications. Now, we have covered similar issues in Australia and New Zealand in terms of the sensitivities of foreign investment. That seems to be directed, although it's not stated explicitly, but that seems to be directed in those two jurisdictions uh, at uh, Chinese investment that is presenting uh, clearly some security concerns to policymakers. Is the political context in the UK similar to that? I wouldn't say it's directly similar, but there is a very important political context here. 
in the UK, the, the political context swirling around this uh, this bill in some way even overshadows the technical detail in the bill itself. People would say that the UK has been moving in this direction. Uh, that is to say, you know, tightening governance of, of foreign direct investment for a long time now. So even before the bill, it moved to make temporary revisions to current law so that it could catch security issues across very new technologies, uh, for example, quantum computing. But those were only very uh, provisional changes before overarching reform that it saw through this bill. A lot of that has been driven by concerns, particularly over China and its buying strategies or, say, corporate influence in the UK. So, for example, in the energy sector, uh, telecommunications with companies like Huawei. And we've seen across the world uh, for that particular company, there have been concerns raised uh, uh, over security. But obviously, through the bill, that's all solidified, that kind of resistance. But, you know, there are conflicting messages going on here for the government and, uh, you know, its critics. So the government would simply say, well, you know, we're just moving with the times. And it points out that all these, all other big Western powers, so for example, you mentioned Australia, but also the US and Germany, for example, they've all tightened their merger control regimes out of security concerns. And so for the UK, it says, well, we need a new toolkit as well to protect against harm from, from new areas like, you know, data and, and intellectual property. But uh, for the UK, as I mentioned at the start of this, there, there's a very precarious political context because there's a balance in play. While the critics would say the UK has gone too far with the bill at a time of Brexit when it needs to attract foreign investment to the UK. So you've got sort of polarising forces going on. You've got the UK saying, uh, well, we are leaving uh, the, the European Union and uh, all the difficulties that come with that. But we also, at the same time, need to attract foreign investment into the UK because of that uh, significant event. And people looking at this bill would say, well, if it goes too far, it will scare off investors and hurt the economy. Mm. So that is why we are looking with such great interest at what the next steps will be, how things will pan out, how those policy settings uh, may reverberate. What's your sense of what's likely to happen next? Uh, Well, what happens next is you have this uh, very significant legislation going through um, and it will go through the, the relevant processes. I mean, the bill is right now going through various stages of legislative scrutiny and uh, there are various uh, stages to that. So lawmakers can can make amendments to the bill and companies are also allowed to have their say in a consultation process. The government has put out a, a consultation on the bill and key aspects of it. But the government is very determined about this and, and it wants to get this uh, whole thing up and running next year. And uh, to be quite frank, if the final version is anything like the draft one, which has caused so many waves, it will have massive consequences for, for all concerned, really. Mm, but is there any sense of whether the draft version is a bit of an ambit claim on the part of the government and it will be watered down? Or is there a sense that the government actually means what, uh, what is contained in this draft bill? The government has, has, has made it quite clear that what is contained in the draft bill is its position. The, the question is uh, whether the, the pressure from the outside, and there will be a lot of noise about this bill, whether that will change it in, in a radical way. But the general opinion is, is that uh, it won't differ too greatly from what is being proposed now. Simon, thank you so much for uh, speaking to me today. It's been great fun. Thanks, James.
Simon Zakaria, our senior correspondent in London. He covers UK regulation for MLEX and will post a link to his story on this issue at our website, mlexmarketinsight.com. Just click on the Insight Centre tab. And I mentioned in passing the changes to the foreign investment regime in both Australia and New Zealand, which our Sydney correspondent Laurel Henning has been covering diligently. We've collected all of those changes in two case files, which our subscribers can delve into at their leisure. Still to come today, why one-day hearings in South Korea are putting antitrust lawyers under significant strain. You're listening to MLEX's weekly podcast, James Paniki with you. Now, our readers would no doubt be familiar with Naver, the South Korean digital platform, and its recent run-ins with the local competition watchdog. But what may be lost on some international observers is Naver's disquiet over how the regulator holds hearings. It's a procedural issue, but one that, in the eyes of some local players, suggests that South Korean companies have been treated more harshly than their international counterparts. It's a story with many moving parts, but our correspondent Wu Yong Lee is across all of them. Okay, Wu Yong, uh, for those unfamiliar with Naver, tell me something about the company. What do we need to know? Naver is the number one search engine in Korea that has more than 60% of market share in the Korean online search market. Uh, You can ask any Koreans what search engine they use. They will probably say Naver. Um, And Google's market share actually has gone up from um, 5% to about 34% over the past three years, according to a recent survey. But Naver is still the go-to search engine in Korea. And if you visit the Naver search homepage, you will see a slight difference from the Google's because uh, the Naver ones is much busier with flash banners, news services, popular blog posts, uh, even food recipes, etc., Uh, But it is this interesting layout that attracts a lot of South Korean users to this search engine. Um, The company was uh, first launched by former Samsung colleagues in 1998, and it has expanded ever since. And now it runs a variety of services, um, like from blog services, news, digital comics, books, maps, um, you name it. And so, in other words, it has a very strong market position. I suppose it's no surprise that that market uh, dominance would come uh, to the attention of the KFTC, the competition regulator. Tell me something about the investigation that the KFTC launched. Right. Because Naver has been so dominant in like every part of the online services, and the company has been actually the target of antitrust probes by the Korea Fair Trade Commission uh, for allegations that uh, the company favored their own services in some online services they operate. Uh, so the investigation date back to some time in 2016 or 2017. Um, the first allegations that the KFTC held against Naver was in the real estate online search market. Um, the allegation was that Naver blocked its rival Kakao, 
which is the second largest internet company in South Korea, uh, when they tried to enter the real estate search market, Naver uh, used an exclusive dealing contract with property inf- information distributors uh, to not to provide the information to Kakao. Um, for online shopping and video services, Naver uh, was accused of abusing his market position by deliberately deranking others uh, by changing algorithm designs. Um, this, I believe, was triggered by complaints by rival online shopping services and video streaming services. Yes. And so these are familiar uh, criticisms and accusations in the context of uh, platforms and particularly uh, platforms with such a large market share. What did the KFTC uh, conclude in its investigation? What did it find? Right. So after... For uh, or five years of investigation, Naver uh, was fined a total of 28 billion won, which is about 25 billion dollars for uh, abuse of dominance and unfair trade practices in those three online markets. Uh, the large portion of the fine came from the online shopping service case. Uh, the investigation found that Naver had some algorithm updates and changes and some of them resulted in higher rankings for products sold on their own neighbor shopping service. The neighbor received the smallest amount of fine of about 200 million won, which is about $180,000 for algorithm manipulation in the video market. Uh, the regulator found that the algorithm changes that Naver did also resulted in deranking rival video tr- streaming services uh, while bringing a significant increase of more than 22% in the number of video content generated by its own Naver TV services. Okay, so the antitrust dimensions of this story are clear. The fine that was imposed is obviously not a particularly large one, but uh, still nonetheless uh, significant. But uh, this is where we come to the claim of unfair advantage because Neva uh, had one day to defend itself um, from these accusations, and that day was, uh, to say the very least, an action-packed day. So tell me something about that hearing process. How did it unfold? Uh, Naver is definitely not happy with uh, the outcome and the fine. So the company is saying that it will definitely appeal the decision and bring the case to the Seoul High Court. But then they're also not happy on the procedural side as well, because Naver had uh, one day each to defend itself against the three allegations. And two of the three hearings were particularly long and grueling because the one that reviewed the real estate search market ended past 10 at night and the the one that reviewed the online shopping service finished 30 minutes before midnight and it would it will occur to many people that why don't they hold another hearing when there is so much to discuss but it's quite rare for the KFTC to grant more than one hearing for local companies because um, 
this is a very logistical issue, but then the KFTC committee handles so many cases and is always overburdened with them. So it's hard for them to grant more than one hearing for many cases here. And Wu Yong, you mentioned the anecdote of, uh, in the case it went right up until midnight, of lawyers only having a few minutes to summarize their case, right? Right, right. Um, So under this very tight schedule, lawyers are always pressed for time to wrap up their arguments in just a few minutes. So for example, uh, lawyers for Naver were asked to cut their arguments short in in the hearing on the video service. So what happened was the KFTC passed a note to Naver lawyers in the middle of the hearing asking to make the arguments as brief as possible because... I believe that they didn't want to see the hearing last to uh, nighttime like the previous one on the online shopping service. Um, because lawyers are so rushed to make their arguments within a, under a tight schedule, they can't waste a single minute. Uh, they say they can't even drink water because they might need to go to the restroom and they will put the hearing on hold for some minutes. And so unless the chairperson of the committee wants to have a break, the hearing goes without a break. But thankfully, there's a lunch break, though. Yes, but look, I mean, it's it's obviously uh, very difficult to feel uh, too sorry for lawyers in the sense that I'm sure they're being remunerated uh, for all of this extra time that they put into it. But it is nonetheless a very gruelling process. Now, Naver's argument uh, here is that this process, this tough process, doesn't apply to foreign companies. So there isn't the same tough regime for everyone and there's not a level playing field. Tell me something about Mm -hmm. that argument. Yes. Uh, Naver definitely thinks that the case deserves enough time, at least more than one hearing, considering the significance of the case. Uh, This is particularly true because the case reviewed complex algorithm changes and designs and what sort of anti-competitive effect they brought to rival players. Uh, And lawyers say that this case requires a lot of uh, thorough reviews and considerations. And another issue is that the lawyers say that they need enough time to review investigators arguments and counter arguments so that um, and they should be able to do so in a separate hearing. Uh, This is in fact a very common complaint raised by South Korean antitrust lawyers. Mm. And and Wu Yong, is that particularly the case as a result of the complexity of these online issues that have been discussed that might not have been the case previously when you were dealing with, you know, a wide range of products, but nothing like, you know, artificial intelligence or algorithms or all of these complex issues? Uh, Yes, this is the first time that um, this algorithm issue was was handled by the KFTC. And this case was actually held by, it was praised by the KFTC that uh, this is our first sanctioned decision on uh, the algorithm manipulation. So, uh, this is something that the KFTC thinks uh, proud of, but then this is the case. The neighbor thinks that this required, this should have had more thorough uh, discussions and reviews and considerations. 
Sure. Sorry, I rudely interrupted you before when you were talking about how uh, local companies compare with international companies. How how is that difference played out? Mm-hmm. Um, so while the local companies get only one hearing, mostly the situation for foreign companies, especially American ones, are different. Uh, they get multiple hearings. So, for example, Apple, which was under investigation for suspected abuse of superior bargaining position uh, against local telecom companies, had three hearings. The company was even granted a fourth hearing, but that didn't take place only because Apple requested to enter a consent order agreement with the KFTC. And uh, KFTC also granted five hearings for Qualcomm when they reviewed allegations of unfair patent licensing practices. Uh, so, so what's the explanation for this two-tiered uh, process, this this difference in, in the regime? Why are foreign companies being treated differently? Right. This is more of a result of many years of complaints and lobbying efforts by American companies. And last year, the official complaint came from the U.S. trade representatives, which raised a, uh, an issue with the South Korean competition hearing process. Uh, they said that the process undermined the right to review and report the evidence against American companies. And their claim was that this violates the competition-related clauses in the U.S.-Korea uh, free trade agreement. Look, Wooyong, this is a fascinating story. Thank you so much for uh, walking me through it again today. Thank you, James. Wooyong Lee is a correspondent based in MNEX's office in Seoul and will post a link to her recent analysis of the procedural concerns expressed by Neva at our website, mlexmarketinsight.com. That's M-L-E-X marketinsight.com. And I'm contractually obliged to tell you in the dying moments of the program that you can subscribe to MLEX Podcasts on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud and Stitcher. Leave a review, recommend us to a friend, help us spread the regulatory news wherever you may be. And that's it for today. We'll be back in your feed next Friday morning, GMT. I'm James Panicki. Thank you for being with us this week. I'll see you again very soon. Bye for now.